0: You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. I'm Kenny Ortiz. This is Theology for the Rest of Us coming at you from the great metropolis of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Thanks for listening. So glad to have you. I am so incredibly honored that so many of you are loyal listeners and loyal supporters of the podcast. So big thanks to all of you. This is episode 254. And in this episode, I'm going to bring you an interview that I did, oh, well over a year ago at this point with uh, with a man by the name of Tyler Vella. I've had him on the show before, uh, done multiple interviews with him in previous episodes I'm going to bring him back. I'm really excited about this interview because it is a little bit unique than, than most of the interviews I've done in that it fits into a, a mini-series that I'm doing. For those of you who've been listening to the podcast the last few episodes, you know that I've been doing this series on all things related to creation and evolution, macro-evolution versus micro-evolution, talk about the origins of the universe, uh, age of the universe, origins of the earth age of the earth, origins of humanity, all all things related to that. I've talked about the different hermeneutical approaches uh, and perspectives when approaching Genesis chapter 1 and how there are different ways to to interpret it or approach it. No doubt most of you who have maybe been a part of evangelical circles for quite some time, you are familiar with um, a a perspective that is really well-known, uh, what we would call the concordous view and the probably the literal the most literal and strictest version of that and that is the young earth the idea that the earth is not millions and millions of years old but just a few thousand years old and again that, that takes a what I would call an uber literal or the strictest and most literal concordous view and approach to Genesis one. But there is a different way to approach Genesis one. I talked about that in the last two episodes, episode 252 and 253. I talked about the different approaches to Genesis chapter 1. In this interview that I do with Tyler, um, he's going to kind of unpack a, a version or a form of the non-concordist view uh, of Genesis chapter 1. He's going to unpack the, the approach that is probably least known by many evangelicals out there. Most people probably are not familiar with the hypothesis that is that is that he will that he subscribes to and will assert and talk about in this interview, and that is the framework hypothesis. Of course, he's not the only one that holds to this. There are others, um, and 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 the way that he will articulate it, or the way it's been articulated in recent times, is relatively new to to Christendom. But I, I would argue that there are that there are bits and pieces of church history or moments in church history where the data would lead us to believe that there have been people throughout church history that embraced something like this. They may not have articulated the same way that some of the newer scholars are articulating it. They may not have had the exact same framework and structure for it, but I don't think this is a brand new perspective. Like, it never existed before the 1800s. That is the case for some other views related to Genesis chapter 1. Tyler will mention that. We'll talk about that. Uh, But I don't necessarily think that's the case. Um, For for his particular view. This interview is also a little bit unique as I mentioned a moment ago in that I do have lots of other interviews that I've done that don't fit into a series and that just kind of dovetails into the fact that I do have lots of interviews in the can that I haven't gotten to. I haven't gotten a chance to post nearly as much as I wanted to. Over the last 12 to 15 months I've done more than two dozen interviews, close to 30 interviews that that still need to be edited and posted. I just haven't gotten there, but I promise I will. So over the next few weeks and months, you're going to be seeing lots of interviews coming up that I've done with different people and authors, um, and most of them are interviews that I've done not recently. Most of the ones most I've done, you know, uh, in 2017. So at the record, as I'm recording this episode, it's it's May of 2018. So most of them were in 2017. So apologize to all of our interviewees. As well to, to you, Tyler, uh, you're probably listening to this, so apologize it's taken so long to get this posted, but super excited to bring this episode to you. Uh, Tyler himself is a podcaster, author, theologian uh, himself. He is also uh, pro- currently working on some graduate work in seminary, as am I. Uh, Tyler's got a, a, a really great both apologetic and theology ministry. He spends a lot of his time... Uh, conversing and debating with atheists he does a great great job of using uh, philosophy and other and, and and other topics related to that to really, Help expose some of the thought processes of people that hold to atheistic worldviews that, quite frankly, are incoherent in a lot of ways. He does a great job, and he's a great theologian in his own right. I know that may not be from his perspective his his primary goal. He he's very passionate about apologetics and 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 debating and conversing with atheists. Um, but he is a really really good theologian in his own right. Before we get to the interview, I want to just play a, a brief clip as i'm as i'm recording this it is may 5th this episode will go live the morning of may 6th 2018 uh, 2 weeks from today um, 2 weeks from this weekend tyler and a group of dudes are hosting a conference called the Mentionables Conference. I actually mentioned this on the podcast a few days ago or a few weeks ago. I did a special promo. Uh, if you are anywhere near the Carolinas, if you're in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, Florida, anywhere in the Midwest and you're in driving distance to the Carolinas, I would encourage you to to to. Potentially look into attending this conference. Now, even if you're far away, if you have the ability to travel there, uh, or you got the weekend off, I would highly encourage you to to consider this uh, this this conference being put on by a group of men called the Mentionables. It's really great stuff. So, I'm going to play a quick advertisement for that conference right now.
0: It all started with a small-time dream: hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker, and with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages? Do we want to? With these two questions, The Mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to TheMentionables.org to get your tickets or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables, small-time voices, big-time noise.
1: And there you have it, Mentionable the Conference, May 18th and May 19th at Greensboro Christian Church in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's only 20 bucks. Go head over to the website, check it out. The website is themensionables.org. Again, themensionables.org. You're going to get Tyler Vella and a bunch of other great theologians and apologists. I want to encourage you to check it out if you're listening to this before May eighteenth, 2018. If you're listening to this after that, sorry, you missed the conference. Hope you check out the next one. All right, without further ado, here's the interview I did with Tyler Vela. And we are back on the line with Tyler Vella from the great state of California. Tyler, how are you feeling this evening, sir? I'm
2: doing really well. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Man, I, uh, I'm a big, big fan of your work, love your podcast, and I've had you on before and I'm really, really excited uh, to have you on again. Uh, as the audience heard in the preamble intro just a moment ago, um, I've I've been familiar with this idea of the book of Genesis or, or taking a different perspective on on the book of Genesis. Um, and you really have done some great work. You recently wrote a paper that you're going to talk about in just a moment. Uh, I've got a chance to read a chunk of it. And, and you've done some really great work in kind of presenting some ideas. Uh, again, these are not new ideas in terms of you're the first one to present them but but in a kind of a contemporary sense uh, there's not many people writing or defending this view that i find to be you know consistent and i like uh, a lot resonates kind of kind of with the way i see some of the old testament and so uh, so time is yours tyler tell us a little bit about uh, you know what this paper is that you wrote and and why you wrote it
2: Sure. So um, I, I largely take to what's called a framework um, interpretation of Genesis, um, which is uh, a non-literal view uh, of Genesis 1 um, that sees it as a um, that sees it as basically a, a literary um, a presentation of the creation account. Um, so it's, you know, it's not a s- uh, seven day creation account and it's not, it's not an old earth, uh, creation account. Um, literary framework kind of, it's kind of funny. We'll get, we'll, if anyone who's familiar with literary framework, um, will get kind of accused of, of trying to smuggle in science, which to anyone who holds literary framework is, is a strange <laughs> objection because we, we look at young earth creationists and we look at old earth creationists and we, we kind of. Uh, say to both of them like you're you're trying to read it like a science book. Stop doing that. <laughs> read it like an ancient Near Eastern uh, piece of literature, like we do for every other um, uh, aspect of the Bible. Um, so I, I hold to a literary framework which which basically sees um, the the six days of natural creation um, a, as two tercets two sets of threes, um, with days one through three being kind of the the spheres of creation, um, and then days four through six filling those spheres with with the inhabitants of those different uh, of those different realms um, that's not very new um, I mean that that go that goes pretty far back Meredith Klein was one of the first ones in kind of an academic realm to present something like that um, he wrote a paper back in uh, I think it was either the the, the 50s or 60s um, uh, I think late 50s calls because called uh, because it had not rained um, which is a fantastic um Fantastic article um, that he wrote in the Westminster Theological Journal. Um, that's not new. The framework view is not new. What's kind of new, um, and, and I recognize, is the work on what's called polemics um, and polemical theology. So I, I get this a lot from John Currid, um, who's a professor out at RTS. And, and John Currid has a strong background in Egyptology, um, and, and he wrote a book called Against the Gods, in, in which he looks through the Old Testament, and he says, look, there's all these times where the biblical authors are taking motifs or themes or idioms that were common in their surrounding neighbors, uh, in, in their kind of everyday language, and, he, and, and the biblical author's flipping it on their head, um, and they're using it to satirize their neighbors and to elevate uh, Yahweh, to elevate God. And so he gives some really good examples. Um, so, uh, you, and, and we can go more into this, but just, just to kind of give a, a really clear example of, of some of these, when, when Moses is, is writing in Exodus – and over and over and over again, you get this motif. It, it always says that he redeems him with his, with his mighty arm, that it's by his strong hand, his strong arm, his mighty arm, some, right. some type of variation of that, of that motif. Well, if, if you study through the literature uh, of ancient Egypt, that is a term that is exclusively used to describe Pharaoh, right? That's a term that's, that's used only in, in that culture, in that area, to describe how Pharaoh exerts his will. Right. Right? So it's, it's Pharaoh's strong right arm, uh, his mighty hand, uh, that, that delivers his people or that, um, that conquers uh, another, another tribe or, or that helps uh, spread prosperity throughout the land. Um, so it's a pharaonic label, and it exists centuries, uh, you know, four or five centuries before Moses even enters the scene. And so what Moses is doing in, in Exodus, because really the Exodus account um, up until they leave is a conflict between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt, right? Which Pharaoh was considered one of, and he was considered the top one, right? He was the incarnation uh, of, of Osiris or, or of Ra. And and so what what Moses is doing is saying, look, it's not Pharaoh that is exercising might over Egypt with his mighty right arm. It's Yahweh that has his mighty right arm. Right? Yahweh is the true sovereign. Yahweh is the one that has the real mighty right arm. And so he's, he's using in polemics. He's engaging in polemics. Um, he is taking a motif or an idiom that was common in, in his cultural context. He's flipping it, and not only is he satirizing the gods of Egypt, uh, but he's using it to show um, something theologically important and true about God. Um, That's polemics. And we see it throughout the book of Exodus. It's pretty readily uh, and easily seen. Um, By the way, this is that that whole um, hardening of the heart uh, is actually a polemics as well. I'm not sure if we'll have time to get to that, but it's a really interesting one um, that has a whole lot of uh, relevance since um, the hardening of the heart comes up a lot in in discussions uh, with Calvinists, Arminians, and stuff like that. Um, But... We we see it and we and we readily recognize polemics when we're talking about things like the ten plagues, right? I, I mean, any anyone who sat through a Sunday school or anything through the ten plagues has probably had some one of their Sunday school teachers or a professor or a Bible study or something go through and show how literally every single one of the plagues is is a is a physical and natural polemic against one of the gods of egypt right um right so you you have you have the blood in the nile going against the 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 nile god um you, you have hoppy which is a frog god <laughs> uh what do you think the plague of frogs is about look it's it's not hoppy that is in control of the frogs um so so you have you have all of these um all of these different uh, polemical aspects so what, what is kind of new about the paper is I take that polemical spin, that, that courage starts to develop, and it, and it happens all the way throughout. It happens to the prophets. Polemics, polemics continues. Um, it continues against the Baals um, throughout. So whenever God is seen as riding on the clouds… Right? We, I mean, we, we don't think God is actually physically riding on the clouds, right. but the Canaanites did. They thought Baal, who was a storm god. Um, and so you, you, have, uh, you have Yahweh being presented as, no, uh, Baal is not in control of the storms. Yahweh is the creator that controls the elements, right? Um, so you, you have polemics throughout the entire Old Testament. And really what, what, I'm, what I'm arguing for is, well, it starts directly in Genesis 1. Um, we, we start to see it in Genesis 1. Um, and that doesn't mean that Genesis 1 is allegory or anything like that, which I know you'll have some questions about later, um, but if, if we see polemics throughout, especially it's, it's, it's readily seen throughout, um, throughout the, work, uh, the works of, uh, of Moses, um, why shouldn't we expect to see it in, in theologically important areas like creation? Um, and so that's really what the paper is trying to develop.
1: Man, I, I really, really, I, I, it makes sense to me. I love the way you've articulated it. And again, we're going to have some, some quick, you know, we're, we're going to dive in just a moment. I, I was trying to think of a contemporary understanding of, of of what might be a contemporary polemic someone might use. And so, I'm, I'm going to give you the one I came up with, and you can shoot it down. And tell me if it's crazy. Sure. Uh, uh, LeBron James, in my opinion, is the best basketball player on the planet today, and. If for those people who are out there, sports fans, um, and he is often referred to as King James. It's it's a you know it's a it's a nickname that he was given. But if someone else came along that I thought was better when they were playing basketball, I might write an article that says so and so became the king. Now I don't literally mean he's the king. What I'm trying I'm trying to make the point that he is better than LeBron James and that he or he has more power than LeBron James does. And I'm using the nickname that LeBron James has. To sort of, uh, to sort of mock LeBron James almost, and, and to demonstrate there's someone is better has come along. That's that would sort of be an NBA contemporary polemic. What do you think of my crazy idea there? That,
2: that's that's pretty good. Uh, so that, that is that that that's a pr- probably probably one of the better ones. I, I had a hard time thinking of some con- contemporary polemics as well. Um, the the ones I was thinking of, uh, Trump has made it. You know. Make America great again. Um, how many times have people done make X and X great again? Right. Um, they're they're using that uh, that type of polemics often to satirize, um, often satirize Trump, uh, and usually to, to prop up something else. So um, that that's a that's a that's a good example of it. All right. um, and what and what's important to polemics and 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 we didn't really touch on this, and it's it's not hugely relevant, but as far as literary theory goes, it, it is pretty it is pretty important. Um, is the use of what's called illusion a literary illusion with an a not with a not not illusion illusion um, and and illusion is important because it helps give us some tangible guidelines um, to, de- to help determine when polemics is happening right um, be- because a lot of times you'll you'll you know it, once you start getting into polemics people are like oh it's just parallelomania you know you're just you're just reading you you know, it's, it's, it's almost like um, the the dispensational view where. Uh, kind of the extreme versions of it, right? I'm not talking about all dispensationalists, but the extreme versions, like read the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other hand, right? And 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 there's almost there's almost another version of this where, um, you know, some people might read uh, the Bible in one hand and you know the the coffin text of Egypt in the other, and every little tiny superficial uh, parallel between the two, they're gonna be like, oh, they're copying from each other. Um, and that's not that's not that's not correct either right we don't we don't do that there are there are guidelines to it that I spell out in the paper An illusion is is um, is really helpful because there there are uh, ways of, of, of determining whether an illusion is happening or not um, so so an illusion is a way of taking a common um, uh, uh, term uh, or didactic expression or um, some type of idiom or theme that everyone knows and, and, and altering it just a little bit. But you're using enough of it that everybody knows what you're talking about. Right. So the, the example that, that I used was when, when, um, when I was getting close, my wife and I were getting close to having our second son, people would say, oh, how's everything going? And I would say, oh, we're five minutes to midnight. Um, anyone who grew up in the Cold War knows what that means. Right, it's the doomsday clock. Right, and as as nuclear holocaust got closer, the minutes got closer to midnight. And as it got, you know, it started deescalating. It would get less and less towards midnight. And like five minutes to midnight was like, oh my gosh, like it's around, it's imminent, it's around the corner. Um, and so I was saying, look, I mean, I mean, the doomsday is imminent, right? We're, we're we're almost there. We're almost at the birth. Um, I love my son, by the way, but that was just it was just the way you know we talked about it. Right. That's an illusion. Right. I am playing on an idiom or a theme that everyone knows, but I'm but I'm defamiliarizing it by putting it in a different context. And I'm not talking about nuclear war, I'm talking about the, the imminence of, of the birth of my son. But there's enough overlap where the concepts are relevant, right? I am talking about imminence and I'm talking about radical world shaking change, um, even though I'm not talking I'm talking about the birth of a child, not about nuclear war. Um, that's illusion, um, and that's going to be really helpful in determining whether or not we're dealing with polemics, or whether or not we're dealing with bad parallelism.
1: Yeah, that's I, I, that's really well stated. I think uh, the vast majority of people who hear that are gonna are gonna really understand. You know, sort of like, hey, what what you're talking about here? Because of course, this is going to be new to a lot of people, particularly the typical American Christian you know is dispensationalist don't even they don't realize you're dispensational or they're being influenced by dispensational thought and so this is going to be new for a lot of people but I think the way you just articulated this makes it's going to make a lot of sense for for most people I hope so I hope so uh, so okay so you've established to some extent or I mean a little bit of kind of uh, of your view of genesis um can, can you unpack it a little bit more and then can you contrast it a little bit against what it what maybe might be the typical view in in modern American, you know, evangelicalism. Sure. Well, let, let me actually do
2: the let me do that in reverse order. Um, the typical view. There's two typical views, um, and <clears throat> in in a lot of ways, they're very similar to each other. Um, they both read Genesis one as if it's telling the, the natural order of creation. Um, this is this is the the young Earth creationist view and the old Earth creationist view. They both come to Genesis one, and they they both look at the text, and they and they both read it scientifically. They both read it, and they say, "Okay, the text is telling me how the physical creation came into being, and every single subsequent step is a description of one of the physical events." So when you get to the you know the separations of the waters above and the water below, they're going to say, "Oh well, that's you know that's the hydronic cycle of the early Earth." And uh, when when you try when you know when you get to days you know, day one where the, the, you know, God said, let there be light, but you get to day four and that's when the sun and the moon are created. That's where you start getting these explanations of, oh, well, you know, that's how it would appear uh, from the face of the earth. If you're looking out from the face of the earth, you would just kind of see the light dimly, but as it as it, you know, wore off, then you would see, you know, you, then you would see the, the sun, moon, and stars uh, more clearly. And so, you know, we're having some perspectivalism. You get all these types of uh, of ways to resolve some of these tensions because they, they need to read it scientifically. They just read them scientifically different. Right. Um, so, young earth creationists can say, well, yom, which is where we get the word day, um, has to mean a 24-hour day, a literal day. Um, and and they're going to have their, and, you know and i'm not trying to knock these i mean there are legitimate reasons for for holding to both of these views um, the old earth creationist is going to say well no yom can mean a period of time it can be an indefinite period of time um, and so we're going to read it as an indefinite period of time and it can stand for you know all of all, all of you know the 14 billion what odd years of creation those are the two predominant views The framework view, which I hold to, comes along and says, well, wait a second, Um, we're talking about pre-moderns, right? We're talking about people, we're talking about really about Moses um, writing, which, by the way, I I hold to Mosaic authorship, which I know you're going to ask about how this is different from old old liberalism in a little bit. (laughs) Um, Holding to Mosaic authorship is one of the key importances of this. Um, When Moses comes along they have a different worldview than we do. They didn't think in terms of material creation. Um, they thought in terms of what John Walton calls a functional ontology. So they thought in terms of what things do, not what things are. And so for God to, to, to bring things into creation is to give them form and function. So when, when, um, when, when God finds the earth, right, when, when in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, right, what state was, was the earth in? Well, it was tohu vabohu, right? It was formless and void. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the term that that it's used. Um, Tohu vabohu, throughout the Old Testament, are are terms that describe barren and and uninhabitable, right? It's used used in Jeremiah, it's used in Isaiah, they're used separately in other areas um, to basically describe a desert wasteland, right? It's not only just desert, but it's also completely uninhabitable. You, You can't live there. Um, and so that's the idea of, of of where we find the early Earth. God, God, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. It it was uh, a wasteland, uninhabitable. That's the idea. Um, so, what does God have to do in in an ancient ontology? Well, he has to form it and give everything function. Um, that fits uh, – John Walton argues this in his book, um, uh, the, the Lost World of Genesis 1, um, that really what God is doing it, it, in the ancient world would have made perfect sense. Um, he's giving everything form and function. Um, and so I – and I largely agree with that. In the framework – a lot of the framework, we largely agree with that. Where the polemic comes in is we have to remember, when is Moses writing this? Right? Moses is writing Genesis on the plains of Moab after after the exile, before the children of Israel enter the land. I, When I taught Genesis through Sunday school, I constantly brought that up. If you remember that, like, if your listeners are listening to this and they don't remember anything else I say, remember that Moses is writing right before his death, before the children of Israel enter the land for the first time in the conquest. It will help you make so much more sense of the book of Genesis. Right, um, Because so often when we read through Genesis, Moses is already making clear, look, you don't marry uh, outside of the godly line, right? Well, that's really important when they go into the land, right? That, that's a huge part of the law. You don't marry. And throughout the book of Genesis, what happens when people marry outside of the godly line? Terrible things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's reinforcing it narratively, um, before they go into land. He's, he's, he's setting them up for it. Well, we have to remember what just happened when Moses is writing this. They're, they're leaving the Egyptian culture and they came out of Egypt with a mixed multitude, right? They, they have Egyptians with them. Uh, and so what does Moses need to do? What does God need to do through Moses to help the children of Israel, right? He, he needs to kind of clear out the rabble and he needs to clear out some of the the theological misconceptions and so he needs to undermine that egyptian worldview Um, and so there there's 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 polemics that needs to happen right which is which is why you get polemics all the way through about egyptian deities so when you read through genesis 1 um what so so let let me ask you this i'm going to give you a framework of a story and you tell me what story this is okay Right? So we start out, and there's a pre-creation condition. Everything is lifeless. Everything is, is, is uh, uninhabitable and chaos, and, and there's a watery deep. Above the watery deep, you have the, 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 the divine wind that's hovering over the waters. Then a word is spoken, and light is created. From, from the water, you have a, 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 a hill that arises, um, and the waters above and the land below are separated. Um, which forms uh, the, the heavenly waters above and the earthly waters below. After that, you have the sun that's created for the purpose uh, of ruling the day, and the, the moon is created for the purpose of ruling the, the, the night. Um, then you have earth uh, that sprouts forth with plants, fish, birds, reptiles, and then the land animals. Uh, and then you have the creation uh, of humanity. And then after that, um, the, the God who spoke uh, rests in complete satisfaction. What story did I just describe?
1: I mean that sounds a lot like Genesis.
2: It sounds exactly like Genesis. It's not. So that's the Shabaka stone found in Memphis. It's one of the it's one of the Egyptian coffin texts which predates each which predates Moses by I mean, by 4 or 500 years. Um so so it, so one of the one of the interesting things that happens is when this type of fact is presented, because, because we have other things, you know, we're very familiar with how there's other there's other stories about the flood, right. right? And the normal Christian response is, oh, well, if there's a worldwide flood, everyone would have similar stories. Okay, fine. I mean, w- we can talk about that at a different time. <laughs> but in, in this case, Genesis, you know, Genesis so clearly relates to the same story, not just like, hey, there was creation, but like… In the order and down to the details, you're pretty hard pressed. I mean, you're you're straining at credulity to say that Moses wasn't familiar with this story, being right. raised in the courts of Egypt, right? It, it would and, actually
1: be absurd to think that he wasn't. Uh, it, absolutely absurd, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's just it just strains at credulity to think that. Um, and so when he's when he's putting pen to paper and God is revealing to him uh, the creation account. He structures Genesis one the same way that the Memphis Shabaka stone structures its story, right? Uh, that's polemics. But what he does, and what I left out intentionally, um, is he what Mo- Moses intentionally shows that Yahweh is the creator and nothing else. Is the creator so? So in in the Memphis Stone, uh, everything is divine. So uh, so I said the sun was was created to rule over the day. Well, in 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 the Shabaka Stone, that's because the sun is a deity and the moon is a deity uh, and and the wind you know is is not just uh, you know the the Holy Spirit of, of of the one true God. It's its own deity, and uh, you have the different the different gods that are created to rule over the fit. I mean, you have it's a it's a polytheistic worldview, whereas Moses is very clear showing no it's not these gods that created it's Yahweh, the yeah. one true God that created everything and, he, and and what's really interesting is if you read through Genesis 1 he doesn't use the normal words for things like sun uh, and moon and stars right He calls them the greater light and the lesser light. Um, that's because at this time period the, the, the word for sun and the word for moon had been turned into deities. Right, we, we we often we often think of the the Jews, the early Jews, as being oh they were you know they were good monotheistic Jews, they really weren't, and we know it historically. We know they weren't. We we found their cultic sites. We we know that they worshipped um, uh, the the sun and the moon. Um, we we know that they worshipped Yerich, uh, which is which was the moon. Um, we we know that they worshipped uh, uh, Shemesh uh, as as a deity. So which is the sun. Um, so, so what Moses is doing is being very clear. He's saying, look, I'm not even going to call them those names because they're, they're not divine. It's right. the greater light and the lesser light. That's it. And God created them. Yahweh is the one true creator. Um, uh, which, which he, so, he, so he's taking these, these, um, these very common stories and idioms and everything, and he's, and he's recasting them. He's reflipping them to show, you know who the one true creator is? Yahweh is. Um, over and over and over again. So, if you read through the paper, I give just tons of examples um, where it's showing um, that that Moses is very intentionally saying uh, Yahweh is the one true creator um, of all of creation, and there there are no other deities I- I involved in any of it. It's a, it's a monotheistic cosmogony. Um, uh, cosmogony is just a, the the fancy word for uh, the the how the creation came into being. Um, so it's it's kind of this this divine one-upmanship where where Moses is saying nope sorry you, you Egyptians who are with us you, you got to scrap that your understanding of how and how the earth came into creation and who runs it and who belongs to it is wrong um, and this is this is the right way
1: man it's really really good you know I think sometimes we forget I know many of us we we, we grow up in our churches with youth groups or Sunday schools and we and we think of the Jews being in this vacuum, and, and we forget that the people of Israel—they they had just spent—I mean, all, everyone who's in the desert—they've spent the entire lives living in Egypt, and then when they come out of Egypt, they—as you just said—there's a mixed bag of people there. That God, God is making the point, or He's establishing a foundation for a a worldview that is much different than what many of them were were familiar with, and Moses brilliantly. Turns to, takes what they're familiar with and turns it on their turns it on its head to point it all to to the one true God. Uh, it, it really, uh, really, really good. I think the point you made earlier, and I just want to reiterate. Uh, it, I mean, whether it's whether it's Genesis one, whether it's understanding the Nephilim, whether it's understanding chunks of the Psalms. There are so many times in the Old Testament that if we can remember this is Moses writing after you know when they're in the plains of Moab, if that can be remembered, it does, as you said, really remind us of. It gives us it sheds light on some things that are really valuable Uh, yeah
2: yeah and i and i think it's also it's important to remember because right now some of your listeners are probably just super upset about this (laughs) uh, to be honest i hope so (laughs) um which which you know i i understand this is where i push back though i'm going to push back a little bit and and they're going to say look you can't read Genesis one that way because if you do, you're throwing out a literal. You know, you're throwing out literal creation, um, which what what that actually means is you're throwing out you know a young earth creationist usually. Um, but I'm going to ask them. I'm going to say, okay, look, do you do you think? That the earth was created, uh, that, that it's a bowl, um, that it sits, it rests on pillars, that there's a foundation stone that holds it all in, and that there's, that there's actually gates and, and, and fencing that goes around the ocean to keep the waters in, right? And do you think there's a firmament? Do you think there's a big, uh, hard dome that goes over, um, and, and within the firmament, all the stars rest, right? Everyone's going to say no. No, of course not. I'm going to say, well, that's Job 38, right? That's what Job 38 said. And typically, what they'll say, and you know, I'm not trying to create strawmen. I've had these conversations probably hundreds of times. Typically, what they're going to say is they're going to say, "Oh well, Job 38 is poetic, right?" Right. There's two problems with that. Uh, Job 30, 38 is hardly poetic. I mean, it's sort it has some poetic elements, some not. It's just a list of a lot of questions, right? It's after right. it's after it's when Yahweh shows up and finally says, "All right, gird, gird your loins, Job. I'm going to talk to you like a man." Um, and he says you know where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth and so forth the thing is is that perfectly we know what the ancient the ancients thought about the world we know what their cosmological layout was right they didn't think of it like we think of it they thought of it as the earth was a disk uh, it rested on it had foundation zones it rested on a pillar and there was literally uh, borders around it we know we we know what they thought about it we have their writings right we know what the ancient jews thought about it we, we just we we have plenty of of evidence of this and so in that example no no Jew would have been like oh that's poetic right that would be like that would be like Yahweh coming to us and mean like where were you when I caused the big bang where where were you when I caused you know uh, the the all helium atoms to compress together and as they fused they formed heavier elements and sunk down to the middle of the stars and as the stars supernova and blew out they scattered the heavier elements around and as gravity right, that's what those questions would be like um and if we heard that, we might say, oh, well, it's kind of poetic, but it's using our worldview, right? Right. That's what Job 38 is doing. No one takes that and says, oh, well, <laughs> you, you know, if you read that, you're not holding to a literal creation, right? Well, you know, you're, you're reading in science by saying that it's not a flat earth and that it doesn't rest on a cornerstone, right? We don't say that. Um, but some, for some reason, we come to Genesis 1, we do. Um even though Genesis one is far more poetic right. uh, than than Job thirty eight, Any, anyone who's familiar with Hebrew literature, it's funny because you read through it and you and, and the editors of your Bible put it in this weird scansion. They don't quite put it in poetry, but they don't put it in prose either. And it's largely political. It really should be a poetic scansion. There's so much repetition. There's so much illusion. There's there's so – it's so heavily weighted with with Hebrew poetic um, literary features. It, it's like one of the most poetic sections that we have. Um, and so it really should be. Um and yet, we we take it as uh, that it has to be read in this kind of literal way. That we don't read any of their creation accounts that way, and, and we don't we don't have a problem when in, when we read the other creation accounts, uh, like like in Psalm nineteen and, and Job thirty eight. We we just don't have a problem with people when they read it as poetic. It's just right. not an issue. Um,
1: I had some, uh, I had someone ask me that I mean, recently. He literally just said to me, "Well, how, how can you take Genesis?" And I use the word poetic, and I you know I, I don't know if that's the right literary word I want to use. You're using it, so I feel more I feel confirmed now or affirmed. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, as someone said to me, it, um you, "You're reading it, or why do you why do you take these perspectives?" I said, "Well, because because the first several chapters of Genesis are written in a very poetic manner." He goes, "Well, how do you know that?" And I said, "Well, I said all with all due respect, I." It was a younger guy, so I I spoke to him a little more firmly. It was a young 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 guy in his twenties. He was a little arrogant, and I said yeah. I said, "Well, because I've taken a Hebrew class and you haven't." I mean, I, and I didn't mean and I didn't mean to be condescending. It was just it, I, I find so often I don't know if this is your experience that people who just who either haven't really studied it or just refuse to study it are the ones that have a strong opinion. But if you actually study it, I mean, and I'm not a Hebrew expert by any means. I've I've taken one biblical Hebrew class. And it, it became abundantly clear to me that, that, that Genesis one should not be read like it's a science textbook. I should not read this like it's a geography textbook. Uh, that, that's not how I ought to approach this. Is that your experience as well?
2: Yeah, it is a little bit. Um, it, a lot of times, it's it's people who have only who don't study it, or if they they've read everything um, from you know Answers in Genesis, and that's the only side they they've read, for example. Um, the and, and the thing is, is that the so they they'll they'll say like oh well you know it, you can't read Genesis one a, as poetic and and really it poetry is probably a, a safe way to do it because you can also have historically accurate poems correct right um, the the midnight ride of Paul Revere right do we do we think that just because it's poetic that it didn't happen. Well, no, right. right? So so just because it's poetry also doesn't undermine that it's historical. Uh, it just might not happen in the exact order, and, and I'll talk about, you know, there's there's some other interesting things that have to do with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I found that that the usually the more dogmatic they are, the, the less they've studied it or the less they're willing to study it. Um, but at the same time, part of it also comes from studying not just Hebrew, but hermeneutics, because we also understand that, that. Poetry and prose is not like black and white. It's really a sliding scale, especially when you're starting in ancient languages. Um, you can have very poetic prose, and you can have very st- kind of stark uh, poetry. Um, it, it, it's not. It's not like oh, you know, this is exactly prose and this is ac- exactly poetry, um, and, and and so that that's kind of what. Plays into it, but um, at the very least, Genesis 1 is highly stylized, tons of literary structures, tons of chiasms, tons of repetition, um, tons and tons of just these literary um, framework uh, hooks that that the rest of the narrative falls on so i I mean really, the only thing that keeps people from saying that it's full poetry whatsoever is that it uses a vob consecutive um which which is um really the way that it says and this in Hebrew and it, it keeps narratives going um which is which is you know a Hebrew marker for historical narrative um so it has vob consecutive throughout there. But it has every other marker of Hebrew poetry you could possibly think of in there as well. Um, so you know, it's 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 far, 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 far more on the poetic side than on the prose side. Um, is, which is interesting
1: at what point in the book of Genesis do we see this? um, I think I know the answer, but I want to, I want to get your thought. at what point in the book of Genesis does do we go away from the uh, the the over the overly poetic nature to a what might feel a little more? historical or a little more textual at what point in the book do we see moses making that transition if at all
2: yeah absolutely uh, uh, genesis 2 okay um i mean you you have so in genesis 1 and you'll notice this in your bible if you open it, again they, they do that kind of like quasi poetic scansion right it's it's indented on both sides but it's not set in poetry you know uh, layout but it's not the same prose historical as the rest of it but you'll see in genesis 2 it goes back to normal scansion right? Uh, Because in Genesis 2, you stop having all of the repetition, and you stop having all of the literary structures, and you stop having um, all of the intricately tight chiastic structures, and you stop having all of this type of poetic structures, right? Which also explains why there's two different creation accounts. Um, One of them is a highly stylized, highly poetic, polemical account. The other one is a temple text, um, which I also get to in the paper, probably outside of what we want to talk about here, um, but but it functions as a temple text uh, where where the garden is is the 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 temple, the inner courts, and and um, you know where God resides is the holy of holies, and Adam serves as uh, as a priest. Um, to tend and to serve, which is the two words that are used um, to describe the Levites and what they're supposed to do uh, in the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it turns into a temple text, and there's some really interesting polemical aspects of the temple text compared to other Egyptian and Canaanite temple texts in there as well. Um, so there's still polemics happening, but it's very clearly not poetic anymore. Um, it's very clearly t- exhibiting, okay. this is out now, now we are hitting history, Um and, and and a lot of times people object, well you know you can't you can't read you know you can't consistently read one as poetry and and the, and the rest is not. And I wanted to say, well, sure you can right We do, we do it all the time. I, I mean do you suddenly go, oh well there's there's narrative in, in Exodus 14, but once we get to Moses song in Exodus 15, you know you can't read the rest of Exodus as narrative because you, you read that one chapter as poetry. I mean, of course not. Um, we we blend through within genres. We we blend through different types of literary structures all the time. You can't read the prophets unless you do it. <laughs> right. Um, so so I, I'm just gonna say, well, no, of course. I mean that's just. And that's just hermeneutics. So when they say, "Well, how do you how do you de- determine it? it's So subjective. Well, it's not subjective. That's that's what hermeneutics is for. That's what study is for, um, to help to help us understand these types of things. Um, and I don't claim to have it all all figured out. I mean, there are still some problems. Every every view is going to have questions that are harder to answer on one view than on the other. Um, but but I think the weight of the evidence falls towards this view.
1: Yeah, and I I, I I've obviously. You're preaching to the choir with me, as you said earlier. Though there are definitely people listening to this that are thinking either one, I've never heard this, this is as crazy, or two, these guys are undermining the credibility of the scripture. And I mean, that, yeah. those are the those are the thoughts. um Well, yeah, and
2: and and let me address that too, really fast, because what's really interesting is we have no problem with this when it comes to the gospels, right? The gospels are straightforward history, but. Anyone who studied the Gospels, e- even, even you know, kind of uh, young earth creationists, uh, high, high, tightly literal um, uh, dispensationalists, are going to recognize that the Gospels aren't written in chronological order. Right. Matthew is written thematically. But we don't say just because it's not written in chronological, chronological order, it's written the- thematically, which is really a literary organization. Um we're not going to say, oh, well, it undermines credibility, right? It, it undermines inerrancy or, or, or inspiration. We're going to say, well, no, just they, they didn't write history like we write history. Right. And it's not a problem. Um, and I'm just going to say, well, why don't we do that with Genesis 1? Why, why? Why is that somehow a problem? Why? Why can God inspire a creation account in Job thirty-eight that's quote unquote poetic, and it's not a problem for inspiration because God inspired it? But if I'm going to say, oh well, God inspired Moses to write a literary account that was polemicizing um, the ancient Near Eastern or the ancient Near Eastern concepts of, of the deities, specifically the Egyptians, why would that be undermining inspiration, right? If, if, if that if that's what the authorial intent was, if that's if that's how Moses meant it. Then that's how God inspired Moses to mean it, and there right. shouldn't be a problem.
1: And That's exactly you know that was actually one of my one of the thoughts I wanted to I wanted to ask you. I, I think I've got my own speculation as, but this feels like a a more contemporary debate. You know, as I read through uh, some of the reformers, when I read through Calvin's commentaries, when I read through you know uh, middle aged Catholic monks, and when I, this doesn't feel like a debate that was happening in the 1300s or in the in the sixth century it doesn't even feel like it was a debate was happening in the 1800s this really feels like a uh or at least not in the early 1800s this feels like a more contemporary debate contemporary being you know you know the last 70 to 150 years maybe yep. um it, so so something happened that made people uber nervous about not taking genesis 1 extremely literal right. um what, what do you know what caused that or what in your opinion you know yeah. your opinion what will be what will this the, the events oh yeah darwin happened
2: um so so it, it, after the rise of modernity uh you, you have charles darwin writing on the origin of species um which suddenly felt like an attack on on the story of adam right so so if you so if you have adam you know evolving from from prior uh, ape uh, species what does that do to sin what does that do to creation what does that do to um are being made in the image of God, right? There there, there are all kinds of problems that, that arise from that theologically. So bef- before, before evolution came around, uh, people could have these debates, and it, it just wasn't an issue, right? I mean, b- before Darwin came around, you had old-earth creationists, you had young-earth creationists, you had people like Augustine who basically said, look uh, – it, it could be whatever. I mean, Augustine basically said, uh, "Don't hold your view of Genesis so tightly that that we'll discover things in nature, and it'll make you look stupid." Um, I mean, he put it much more eloquently than that. Right. But um, he, was and, right. and he, he was right, by the way. Yeah, and and he, and, and Augustine holds to spontaneous creation. He thought all seven days of creation were representative of one instant of creation. Um, so, so you, I mean, you have you have divergent views. You know, all the way back from, from the beginning, and, and there's disagreement that happens uh, as well in some of the, the Midrash and some of the different uh, Jewish views as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's still predominantly what we would call young earth creationism, right? But as mo- most of that was actually not from reading Genesis 1. It was from um, doing the, g- the genealogies is actually what drove it until Darwin. Um, and once Darwin happened, and you have the rise of the scientific method, and you have the rise of modernity, um, you have the church then reacting um, and, and trying to fight fire with fire and say, well, you know, we, we need to stand on the authority of the scriptures. But now you have the scriptures have to uphold, or, or science has to uphold the scriptures, and scriptures has to uphold the science. And so you have the development of, you know, creation science and, and all that kind of stuff. And they need to speak to each other. Um, and they need to uphold each other. And, and they need to uphold each other. Specifically against um, uh, evolutionary views or anything that smacks of it right so so uh, being an atheistic evolutionist is almost as bad to some people uh, as being you know a Christian theistic evolutionist right you, you might you might as well just all go to hell together um, to some people um, which is sad. Uh, Lee, Lee Irons, who um, who contributed to the book The Genesis Debate, which, I, I mean, I highly recommend to anyone, it, it's um, th- one of the best books, the multi-view books that, that I've read on it, um, and, and Lee Irons uh, and Meredith Klein co-wrote the the side that the argues for the framework model, he, he has a podcast um, called The Glory Cloud, which they're going through Meredith Klein's theology, and, and they make the point of, look <clears> – <throat> if young earth creationism is true and it's that important like for some people if if you don't hold to young earth creationism like they question your salvation right they're going to say it's like the most important theological doctrine never repeated again in the scriptures right Right. if it's if it's that important um it's never brought up again no one seems to care about the age of the earth ever again after genesis 1 Mm. it's just not important to anyone in the scriptures it's it, it it never even comes up um with a with possible exception of Exodus 20, which, uh, you know, we can get into later if you'd like, and, and there's, there's I, I think that isn't talking about the age of the earth anyways, but, um, so it's like the most important theological point never brought up again. However, um, things like God's sovereignty... Um, and, and God's control over creation, uh, and are being made in the image of God, um, and and are being uh, you know creaturely kings to exercise dominion and and the use of rest and and all of these other things that and themes that things like framework theology develop are mentioned constantly throughout the scriptures. Um, and and so the framework the framework folk like myself are going to say why don't we focus on that when we're talking about Genesis one. You can hold to whatever view you want to about the the what the days mean. Go for it, go nuts. Um, but why don't we focus when we talk about Genesis one uh, about the really important theological matters um, that are repeated consistently and constantly throughout the rest of scriptures and lead us towards Christ?
1: Man, that's, um, that, really- that's
2: going to be much more important.
1: Man, I I, I agree wholeheartedly. What a great! Uh, I think that's a great challenge. Uh, not not just with Genesis one. I think there's lots of passages of scripture uh, throughout the the Old Testament that I think we oftentimes forget in the in the gospel of john jesus said jesus makes it very clear all of the law and the prophets they, they speak to one thing they speak to me jesus says yep. and um and i, I think there is elements of the character and nature of god that we can pull out from these passages but instead of doing that which i think is the the right thing or maybe the will be the most the most beneficial thing we sort of get lost in these ancillary things in my, in my opinion what, what i would call ancillary um that's a really, really great thought. Okay, so you've said a couple things that I really like, and I want you to unpack or, or at least touch on a little bit if you can. Um, you've kind of talked on the idea that uh, Genesis 1 is not speaking to a natural order of things or not necessarily the way we typically have thought about it in our modern evangelical circles, particularly in our in some of the dispensational circles that are out there. And, and I apologize if anyone listening to this is offended by that. I don't mean to. Uh, just, just, just kind of ma- making a fact that's the reality in dispensational circles. Um, that is that is the nor- there there is a a normal view or a typical view so to speak. So we've already sort of said hey we don't necessarily subscribe that this is a natural order of things in Genesis. Um, wh- are there other clues? You've already sort of alluded to some. Can you give us any specific examples of clues from Genesis one that you would say okay th- this points to this being a polemic or, or this points to this? Are there other clues or other examples of? That, that point to genesis one being a polemic that could be helpful to a listener
2: yeah so, so it's a good question um so so i gave i gave the structure of of um of the account right so that that order from you know pre-creation and the lifeless cosmos and the water deep right you you have you have the literary structure of of the memphis uh shabaka stone uh narrative um that moses is clearly tapping into um, you you do have other issues um, that that rise up um, as well. So um, you you have some um, not only um, terminological uh, similarities uh, but conceptual ones. Um, and so the 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 tohu vabohu right the empty and formless the formless and void um, in the Egyptian stories um, not it's not tohu vabohu it's hehu um, which Means something like um, boundless in indif- differentiation, right? It's just kind of um, uh, chaos. Every everything is you, you can't differentiate between everything. It's just kind of this the amorphous chaos. That that's the starting point. Um, you you have in the original you have darkness hovering over the water deep in Genesis one. Um, in uh, in the Shabaka stone you have uh, you have darkness hovering over the primordial waters. So so you have have a lot of these similarities that that go through it. Um, You also have, what's interesting um, is that the creation of humans um, are are served to show that we are not menial labor to the gods. Um, We are created specifically in the image of God, um, and we're created to function like God functions, um, and I don't mean that as like we're little mini gods, um, but we are to exercise dominion over creation in the same way that God exercises dominion over all of creation, right? So, so God tells us we are to go out um, to to uh, subdue and exercise dominion, right? Um, that is, that we are supposed to act um, uh, in, in, a, in a sovereign way over creation. Um, we are to mirror God over creation. Um, we are told to procreate. Um, we we can't create ex nihilo from nothing, but we are told to uh, to be creative in our activities. We're, we're told to to, to create. Um, so so there's there's all kinds uh, of things throughout um, throughout that show some of these some of these polemical aspects to it. Um, but there are lots of things that show um, that it's that it's not necessarily a six day creation. Um, Meredith Klein points out. Um, that in in Genesis, uh, I think it's Genesis two four two six, um, that that the, the there no no shrub of the field has sprouted up because it had not yet rained, right? Um, well, what that tells us is that is that God God wants to use natural means in order to to bring about natural means. God uses rain to make plants grow. Um, why, why is it that, that that has to be the case in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 1, it's all has to be special creation, um, right? And, and a lot of times, young earth creationists will say, oh, are you, are you saying that God can't do it? No, God, God can do it. He, he just clearly chooses not to, and he tells us that he chooses not to. Um, along the same line, light is made in Genesis 1. The sun is made in Genesis 4. Um, and there's three days in between, right? right? This is problematic uh, on a young earth creation account. Now they have, they have answers to try to get around it, but it's, but it is problematic because we're told in day four, what was the purpose of the sun? Right, the purpose of the sun was to govern daytime and nighttime, uh, to govern uh, for seas and days and times. Right, the whole point of the sun and the moon was so that you could have days, right, on the Earth. Right. Um, well, you had three days before that, right? So, so what governed those three days? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, that's a problem. Um, so the the framework is going to say, oh, well, day one and day four are describing the same day. Right, you, 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 have, you have days one through three are, are these um, you know the, these spheres of creation, and days four through six are, are the population of those spheres, they're, they're the 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 creaturely kingdoms and the creaturely kings. Right, so you, you have the creaturely kingdom uh, of of day and night, um, and you have the kings of day and night, which is the the, the sun and the, and the moon. Um, and so, really, it's 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 kind of reverting back to day one, but it's showing which king populated that that sphere, which what what exercised dominion. Um, now, the young earth creationist is going to say, "Oh, well, you know, 24 hours is just one rotation on the axle. God could have made a stationary light, uh, you know, where the sun would be, right? You could, you can have all these kind of explanations, which is, I mean." It's starting to get a little strenuous once you start doing some of those types of somersaults, but we also have to remember that God created light at the end, and and what did he he say about the first day, right? That it was good. Mm. Um, Well, it it couldn't have been that good if three days later he scrapped it and did something else. (laughs) Uh, I mean, so so you see, I mean... Again, they, they, you know, they have answers to get out of these things, but you, you have some of these problems that start arising when you actually start looking at how the days relate to each other. Um, and, and, I sh- and I should say that just, just because I'm pointing out these problems right, doesn't mean that the Earth isn't 6,000 years old. Right? And, I, and I have other complaints about the way the old earth creationists read it as well, right? Where you, where you read this massive, you know, 14 billion year gap between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and, you know, like, just none of that's in the text. So what does the text say? What's the authorial intent? And, and I just find both of them lacking. Now, if you if, if the young earth creationists, the old earth creationists want to look to science and have science say, oh, you know, the young earth creationist thinks creation science and, and answers in Genesis does a good job showing that from science the earth is 6,000 or 10,000 years old go for it right great then believe that you know believe it based on the science that's just probably not what moses was trying to get across right um and if the old earth creationist wants to look to science and say oh well you know i think there was a big bang and it was 14 point something billion years ago great believe that um based on you know based on what you understand the science to say but that's probably not what moses meant right he he probably wasn't meaning the hydronic cycle in the age of the earth right he's he's polemicizing showing that god is god is the ultimate creator
1: I, I think that's um, a really important. I think so that, maybe that helps some people listening to this, that, that maybe this is new for them. Uh, just, d- just to reiterate that point that you just said, uh, you articulated it really well, the idea that we're not necessarily saying that the earth is not 6,000 years old or 10,000 years old or whatever. We're just saying that wasn't Moses' point in Genesis 1. That wasn't, right. that wasn't the main thrust of what he was trying to communicate, and it probably wasn't anywhere near his radar. Like, the idea of communicating the age of the earth he didn't seem to care about that. That wasn't. He was trying to point to the fact that Yahweh is the sovereign creator overall, over, over overall of creation, right? Exactly. Of how, regardless of how old the creation is. Um, yeah. So if someone out yeah, there and, really wants to hold to the young earth, have at it. Is what you're saying?
2: Yeah. I mean, go for it. That's just. That's just. I, I just don't think that's what that that's the that's what the point of Genesis one is. I don't even think that's a tertiary point of Genesis one. And you get this a lot, right? I mean, you, you get these types of uh, of attempt to uh science is that the right is that, is that a word i can, can i use that yeah yeah it works, it works. to to, to, to science other passages and i mean it happens throughout you you know, see i i forget the verse um but you know the the it talks about the force of the wind and they're like oh see that they knew air had mass and i just want to be like that they really didn't and that's just <laughs> not the point of the, that's not the point of the best it, it the funny thing is is it it's almost the same hermeneutic that atheists use when they read the Bible, right? That kind of like hyperliteral view where they're going to say, "Oh, well, in Second Chronicles, when he's measuring the basin, it basically shows that the radius is three, not pi, and so therefore the Bible doesn't understand pi, right? Because it it does it does, it's, it says you know it was it was three the ratio of three to one, right? And and pi is actually three point one four whatever." Uh, and I just want to be like, well, no, I mean, it, it's an approximation, right? And that's really not the point. It's just trying to say it was about three, three, three cubits across. Like, I mean, that's just the, the point of getting across the scientific or mathematical point about pi just isn't the point. Um, or or uh, there, there's talking about um, in in Isaiah, I think it's uh, 42 or, or something like that, where it talks about um, some passages will say the sphere of the earth, right? Uh it's not the word for sphere. It's the word for circle, right? It's the word for disc. Um, it, there's a perfectly good Hebrew word for for sphere, and Isaiah knows it because he uses it like ten chapters before to talk about uh, to talk about a um, a ball, um, uh, and that's not it. And so, but they'll they'll try to use that verse because it relates to Earth, and they'll say, "Oh, see, they they knew that the Earth was round. Uh, they didn't. They didn't know the Earth was round. They thought it was a disc. Uh, but that's not a problem." Right? Because because Yahweh isn't teaching us what the earth is like, uh, he's teaching us uh, about himself, and he's pointing us towards Jesus Christ. And whatever culture we're in, um, he can he can you know condescend our level and get redemptive point across uh, based on based on our concepts. This is this is John Walton's point where he says, "Look." Um, uh, you know, Yahweh is not trying to teach us um, that the earth is like what the ancient cosmogony is like. Uh, he just uses that as these kind of hooks to hang the really important points, the redemptive, historical, theological points. He just uses those as hooks to hang it on. Um, and, and that's the important thats the important thing that we need to take away from that. Um, I think it was Galileo um, when he was facing, it, it might have been Galileo when he was facing the Inquisition, um, and he said, look, uh, the point of the Bible is, is, is not to tell us how the heaven's Go, but how to go to heaven? Um, which, which I think is a is a helpful way. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't uh, there aren't passages that tell us certain things about human nature and about right. creation and, and things like that. That's just usually not the point of what the passage is telling us, um, right? The 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 example of uh, of the spotted and the striped goats uh, that it was Jacob that he puts the fence up by the thing, right? That's not telling us breeding practices. Um, so, you know, don't, don't try to do that if you, if you're raising goats. Um, that's just not the point of the passage. It's just not trying to tell us uh, about zoology at that point.
1: That's really, really, uh, really good. And again, it doesn't mean that there are not truths that, that might be applicable to our lives or, or truths that are, are, maybe fun to know it just means that that's not the thrust of the passage that's not the point that Moses or whatever the writer is writing throughout the course of the Old Testament that wasn't the point of what they were trying to get across to us
2: yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing about the framework is, so the framework model basically says, look, days uh, one, two, and three are analogous to days four, five, and six, right? Day one, or day four is, is the kings over day one, day, day five is the, you know, the creatures that inhabit day five, and, or day two, and then, uh, you know, the land animals and humanity is what, what inhabits the, the earth from day three. I mean, if you, if you could probably be a young earth creationist and hold that, instead of saying the earth is 6,006 days old, it'd be 6,003 days old whatever that's just not the point that's just not the point of the passage right uh so you know to, to say that it you know it undermines i mean you could you could probably accommodate it to, to make it fit whatever whatever scientific view you don't you know, hold to it's just not the point of the passage it's just you know and 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 i think we should be focusing much more uh, on what moses meant and how moses meant it to be read um than, than really trying to prove uh the age of the earth against our evolutionary and atheistic neighbors
1: really really right. great stuff okay point, so I- point that
2: point them to that god is creator and god is faithful and sovereign and created as in name image to exercise dominion and to find rest in him that's the important part about genesis one
1: right um so i got two two other questions but before i get to the to those i want to ask you about inerrancy and i want to ask you about just j- just as a side note you know if you have any thoughts on the age of the earth um, before we get to those, any, any other thoughts that you think regard, uh, regarding the, the framework perspective, whether it be polemics, whether any other elements out there that are related to this you think you know people who, who love and trust God ought to know this or it would be, it'd be helpful for them to know this particular thing?
2: Um, No, I mean just just being aware of it and and and, and doing some good good research and, and good reading up on. it If you're interested, um, I have a lot of sources in the paper. Um, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned a couple. I've mentioned um, Lee Lee Irons uh, and his contribution to that Genesis debate. Uh, John Walton's book, John Curran's book. I mean, there's 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 some really really helpful works out there um, uh, that you can find in the in the footnotes and the references in the paper.
1: Really, really good. Okay, so. There's a debate that goes on often about the idea of theological liberalism. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we, we have not covered this in the podcast at all. So g- give us like a 12-second version of what theological liberalism is and then spend more time kind of unpacking why the, the framework view and the idea of the polemics of Genesis does not necessarily fall into the camp or, or why yeah. it doesn't fall into the camp of liberalism
2: yeah i mean the the snapshot of liberalism is that it's nonsense um <laughs>
1: Can I tweet uh, I mean, that? I can tweet you that. can. That's good. You
2: can. The, the I mean, the liberalism came out of kind of, uh, you know, German higher criticism, um, and, and, it, and it looked at the history uh, of Israel and tried to read it um, in kind of sociological terms, um, and so it said, you know, um, really after the exile, you have the, you know, this, the, the Jews um, trying to come up with their own history, and so they're taking these kind of different, uh, different sources and they're redacting them together to get the Bible. So you get source criticism out of it, um, and you have most of the old testament then in under a liberal view um being written kind of trying to justify their own existence after the exile you know in the in the sixth fifth and fourth century uh, before christ um and and so they're going to say you know look it's not inspired it's not that you know it, it it tells us more sociologically about the jews than it does anything about god himself um which is which is obviously um absurd um well, I mean, I, I, I think it is. They'll they'll love they'll disagree. Um, this is different for numerous reasons. Uh, one of them is, is the fact, and this is why I said, look, I, I hold a mosaic authorship. Um, uh, I, I I think there's I think there's very very good reasons to, to hold um, that this was written uh, in 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 somewhere somewhere around the 1400s or 1200s depending on when you date the exodus whenever you date the exodus right around that time shortly following um, by 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 Moses at that point point. Um, and, and so so you have the mediator of the covenant with God um, the the you know the Ascribing what God has revealed to him, um, so it, it entirely protects uh, inerrancy uh, and inspiration um, because it's it, it, you know it's whatever it, whatever it, whatever it was that was inspired for Moses to write, he wrote. Um, The question is just, what's the authorial intent? What what did Moses intend to write? What did what did God inspire him to write? Um, So so it's it's different in that regard um, from from theological liberalism. Um, I also got it just as an aside. It was kind of funny. I got accused of Gnosticism, which was interesting. Um, Gnosticism, really? Yeah, which was interesting because. Uh, this person who you know who i love very much he's actually a really nice guy um but he said look what you're basically saying is y- y- you know it's heresy because you're undermining the perspicuity of scripture or the perspicuity of sp- scripture uh as he argued meant that every aspect of the bible is easy to understand right it's 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 uh, pers- uh, perspicuous um that that's clear Right? Um, you know, it's so clear even a child can read it. The problem is that's not theologically what anyone means by perspicuity of Scripture, right? right? Uh, in, in all of the Reformed confessions and, and, and throughout uh, history, uh, theological history, no one says every aspect of the Bible is easy to understand. I mean, uh, Peter says the writings of Paul are hard to understand. Exactly. Right? It's exactly. Um, I,
1: I was thinking that immediately. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so, I mean, that's just not what perspicuity means, right? Um, so it, it just means that the perspicuity just means, look, the overall message of redemption is, is so simple that even a child can understand the basics of it. Um, I, you know, I, we are still plumbing the depths of what it even means to be saved in Christ. Right. Um, right? It, it, it's 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 clear enough that a child can get it, but it's deep enough that we will investigate it for the rest of our lives. Right. Right. Um, but that also doesn't mean that every single passage is equally clear. Some passages I read, and I'm just like, I've studied this. I, I've written papers on it. I'm not even sure what my view of the passage is. Um, so so I, I don't think that. I, but I think we can understand, you know I don't think this is as hard as other passages. Um, I think we can, but he basically said, look, what you're saying is that you have this, you have this gnostic knowledge that only you academics have, right It takes, it takes all this study for, for even the simple person to understand Genesis 1. Um, which, first and foremost, I'm going to say, well, is it bad that we study, right. <laughs> um, you know, to educate ourselves? Um, but I'm also going to say, well, no. I, I mean, I, I think if we read Genesis 1, if we read it in a vacuum and we didn't have all this baggage of young earth creationism, older creationism, and creation wars, and arguing against evolution, um, I think the, the the import and the purpose of Genesis 1 would be clear. God is creator of all things. Uh, we are made in his image, and we are to find rest in him. Um, you know, I, I think that's entirely clear. Um, now, the more we study, the more we might realize, oh, well, there's polemics happening, and there's illusion happening. Oh, and, and Genesis 2 starts, uh, you know, a, a couple-chapter temp- temple text. Um, you know, we we can discover more features of it, and we can come to understand it better. Um, but but I, I don't think the message of Genesis 1 is all that hard to, to figure out from reading it. Um, So, you know, there's not some type of secret Gnostic that only a few of us, you know, truly enlightened ones have. Um, So, which, and then I also pushed back and I said, look, um, without without reading a single uh, historian, um, anything like that, why don't you tell me what the book of Obadiah is about? Um, right without without studying the history of the kings and the divided kingdom, you you read Obadiah and tell me what's happening. You can't do it. You need to study the history behind what's happening um, to understand. You know why is Obadiah you know uh, giving the proclamation that he's giving. Um, so so I don't think there's a problem with needing to understand and study the history about it. Um, but but it, it, again it's 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 just it's not liberalism right it's not denying inerrancy it's not denying inspiration it's a, it's actually you know it's not saying that it's that's it's a late creation uh used to justify uh you know the existence of the priestly class after the exile right none of that um it, you know it, it is entirely um the work that we all think it is written by moses it's just that he, got, he was inspired to say something else than what we typically think he was
1: that's really that, that's a really great point um I think there are and many people don't realize so much of the, uh, the 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 stuff that came out of the 1800s out you know mostly German theologians um, that that has sort of invaded you know modern evangelicalism um, really plagues us more than people realize. And I think there's people embracing elements of liberalism that don't even realize it. So I appreciate you very clearly and succinctly saying this is what liberalism is. Here's why this is not that. We we are still holding to inspiration inerrancy. We believe Moses wrote it. Um, we, we And we believe he wrote it for a very clear purpose, um, which is very different yeah. than what the German liber- liberals of the 1800s and early 1900s are doing.
2: Yeah, and what people don't realize is uh, – I mean it, it takes about a generation for um, academic research to kind of filter down to the lady. Um, to to the church level, what people don't realize is that um, so much uh, of of higher criticism and liberalism has really been just tossed to the flames. I mean, just two tons of academic literature is just it, no one just holds to it anymore. Um, it just hasn't trickled down to it, to, to the popular level yet. Um, that no one holds to that really anymore. I mean, you 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 are now actually having a reversal. You're you're now having highly critical scholars, especially in in, in gospel accounts. You're having high, very, very um, uh, high up, uh, very uh, critical. What typically what we call critical, non-conservative scholars arguing, for example, for extremely early, early dates of the composition of the Gospels. Um, so, whereas you know a, a generation ago um, you would have everyone, uh, you know, critical scholar saying that the Gospels were written in the second century, um, they're they're just they they've reversed course just because we we've we found so many manuscripts and there's been so many so much evidence and it's been refuted so many times. And the same thing has happened in Old Testament studies. I, I mean, uh, the, the source criticism um, has just died a death of a thousand qualifications. Um, so there you know there's still some aspects of it that that critical scholars hold to, but. Um, um, a lot of the stuff that we that we think of when we think of higher criticism just is 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 already in the wastebasket.
1: Man, I love I love it. Praise the Lord. Uh, yeah, and uh, and and I'm excited about the potential to continue to get more evidence for an earlier writing of Revelation. But that's a whole different episode of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
2: actually I, I actually hold the I, I think that every single one of the New Testament with the maybe. uh, one or two exceptions um, was written prior to 70 A.D. So I, I, I hold uh, pretty pretty early dating.
1: Yeah, I, I I hold to very early dating. And but again, another another episode for a different day. Okay, yeah. okay. So I promised there would be. I've got one more question for you uh, before I get to that. Is um, well, let's get to that one. Then we'll go back and we'll ask you about sources and other resources. Um, so Genesis one aside for a moment. I'm just curious on your own opinion, your own perspective if someone asks you, how old is the earth? What, what is the age of the earth? What, what's your answer? How do you respond? And, and why do you come to the conclusion you've come to if, if any? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, it's, it's a hard question for
2: me to answer because, um, I, and, and I don't mean it's a sound incentive. I largely just don't care. Um, it, it just, it's not relevant to me. Um, you know, uh, it's, it, I, I just don't, I don't see the, the, the point in debating it theologically, um, I don't see the point in debating it, um, you know, with with atheists. I mean, if they want to say that the Earth is fourteen billion years old, great. I honestly just haven't studied that much. Um, I mean, I'm inclined to, towards you know old Earth, to you know old uh, old Earth creationism, um, because I'm not, you know, I, I don't hold to a widespread secular conspiracy theory. Um, I, I I think there's you know. Scientists aren't out trying to disprove God with every single breath they take. Um, for the same reason why, you know, I, for the large part, largely uh, don't care what the chemical mass of certain elements are, right? It's just, that's just, you know, that's what science is discovering. Great, because it doesn't contradict what I think the scripture says. Right. Um, so, so, you know, I, 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 from what I've read, I, I have no reason to think that it's young, um, but it's it's not a hill that I'm going to die on because I have just done not enough research on it to really take any type of uh, stand that that you know that I'd want to defend. Um, but but if someone wants to you know if an atheist wants to come to me and they want to defend and, and argue and they want to say oh well you know naturalism is true God is not the creator. Well, well, that that is that is something I'm going to have a dog uh, in that fight. Um, if, you know, if a liberal wants to come along and say, "Oh, well, Genesis one is just you know a redaction uh, of of four different sources," you know, post post exile by by the priestly class, I'm going to have a dog in that fight. Um, so, you know, th- those are the types of things that I think are are far more, uh, not only far more interesting, but also far more relevant. That's really good.
1: Uh, you did mention, by the way, Exodus twenty. You want to you want to take a moment and just kind of speak to that. I, I know because that is a passage that comes up in these conversations often. Yeah.
2: So um, Exodus twenty is um, the giving of the law, um, and it it says. Uh, let me let me actually pull it up. I, I don't want to do it by memory and, and not do it justice. Um, it's the giving of the law, and it's, and it's the part of the law that gives the Sabbath ordinance. Um, right. Oh, I looked up Genesis twenty. Um, it's it's the part that gives the Sabbath, um, and, and it roots the Sabbath in the creation account, right? So, um, uh, let me find it. Um, so, it says, uh, starting in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, so the so I, I said earlier that, you know, it, it. if we're talking about young earth creationism, it's the most important theological point that's never made again in Scripture. Right. This is the one possible exception. However, if we hold the Mosaic authorship of both, whatever Moses meant in Genesis 1, he means here. Um, So if you think he means six days, well, seven literal days, and that's actually going to be one of the reasons why I have a problem with it here in a second, um, then sure, you mean a 24-hour day here as well, because that's what he meant in Genesis 1. If he doesn't mean... (laughs) uh, 24-hour little day, literal day, but he means um, you know uh, the 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 work week as a pattern, um, a, as a structure. Then that's what he means here, right? Whatever he means in Genesis one, he just means here because he's the he's the same author of both of them. Um, so it's it's just really not it's it's kind of a non-starter for me. The problem here is that. For me, and and why I lead for two reasons why I lean more towards um, also why this isn't talking about six literal days um, in the creation account was there was there a twenty four hour day on the seventh day? No, no, right. The seventh day is continuing. God is is yeah. still in his creative rest, right? Um, well, here in Genesis uh, in Genesis 20, or in twenty, it says, "For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all of them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Well, the pattern for us is that we're supposed to rest on the seventh day, right? We, it, it's not that he's saying, "Look, you get to work for six days and then rest from there on out," right? Mm-hmm. So, so the day the days seem to be working analogically as a pattern, like a series of seven and it's not a problem um this is also the pattern that's set for sabbath years right so so we have this pattern for sabbath days for sabbath years and for the year of jubilee which is really sabbath a sabbath of sabbath years right seven sets of seven years um where where you have rest on on the final one um for the finals you know you you it, it you Proclaim freedom to, to everyone. Right? There's final rest. Um, right. So the the point seems to be you've, you 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 have this pattern of of, of a series of six uh, periods, and then you and then you rest on the seventh. And it, and it has to be an analogy because we go back to work after the seventh, whereas whereas God continued to rest. Sort of. Um, if you remember um, when when Jesus uh, is confronted um, about working on the Sabbath, right? His argument's interesting. Um, he he says for just as, as my father is working so am I right he, because he's the lord of the sabbath right well what does that mean well that means the lord is still working on the sabbath um, and so Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, is able to as well. He makes that very, it's a very nuanced, but it's a very interesting theological argument that he's making there. Um, and so the, the, the seventh day, the Sabbath day, is, is clearly longer than a 24-hour day. In Genesis 1, you don't have morning and evening, you don't have a day, you don't have, you know, and, and God pronouncing that it was good. He just rested um, indefinitely. Um, and so you have that pattern being set. So, so I, I think there's there's also good good arguments um, from from um, both the 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 lack of a morning and evening on the seventh day on creation, um, and the pattern being set for the other years of jubilee. And in Jesus's argument that he makes uh, in Matthew, um, for for uh, the intent being a, a pattern of seven, not a set of uh, of seven literal days.
1: That's a that's maybe the best. Uh, explanation or commentary i've heard uh coming out of any thoughts related to exodus 20 um and and how that and how the parallels between genesis 1 and there so that is that is absolutely fantastic um is that covered you cover that in your paper as well uh,
2: I don't cover that many papers, oh. so I, I, I'm actually uh, I'm working on a part two of the paper, um, which actually all all said and done, there might be three parts, which I'm looking at doing a, a, a book on, um, which deals with with all of these types of issues um, surrounding Genesis one. Um, that that it, it's in the, it's in the forthcoming forthcoming paper.
1: I love it, and I'm sure I mean, you got plenty of time on your hands. You know, you only have two kids under two. You know, <laughs> you've yeah, got plenty of time, I'm sure.
2: Two, two kids under two work full time. I'm an elder, go to school, get work in my master's. You know, have yeah. tried try to try to, you know, spend some time with my wife and sleep and eat in there somewhere. That's good, yeah.
1: uh, uh, Mr. Bell, with, with, the, with is, the podcast. That's right, throw the podcast in there. Uh, and then and then you're spending a chunk of time investing in my audience here. Uh, this has been really really fantastic. Uh, I really really appreciate your time and your investment. Um, if uh, if anyone wants to do additional reading, study. Um, we'll definitely get a link to your paper and get that on get a, on our site. Um any other additional resources you might recommend to anyone that says, I really want to dive into this?
2: Um yeah, so the, the gen the book is called The Genesis Debate. Um it's one of the multi views, it's a three view one. Um one of the reasons why I think this one is the best one is because um not only does so a lot of the multi-view ones they'll they'll give their view and then the other contributors will be able to give a response, and that's it. This view actually allows the contributors to give a rejoinder to the responses against their view, which is really, really helpful. It's really interesting. Um, and that one is uh, it has the forward by Norman Geisler. Um, it's called The, the Genesis Debate. Um, that one's really helpful. Um, I also think uh, John Walton's book, um, The Lost World of Genesis 1, is helpful. Um, John Currid's book, Against the Gods, is very helpful. Um, and John Walton actually has a lecture called called um, Reading Genesis with Ancient Eyes. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, which is extremely helpful uh, for that as well. Um, so there, there's some really good resources out there. Um, there's there's a lot of articles that are being published um, uh, lately on on um, seeing Genesis or seeing uh, Egypt a- as the historical background for um, for the Pentateuch rather than uh, Mesopotamian um, or, or um, Assyrian literature, which is also one of the big differences between a more conservative and a more liberal view. Um, and so there's some really good research coming out on that as well. And And there's some there's some papers that are linked uh, that are in the footnotes and the citations uh, of the paper. Awesome.
1: So we will have your paper linked up in the show notes for this episode, as well as uh, multiple uh, all of those books will have. Uh, listed and linked up in the show notes there. Um, Mr. Vela, we'll also have all of your contact info in the show notes so people can check uh, can check out the Free Thinker podcast, which I'm a big, big fan of and love your work there. And we'll make sure that everyone can get, get a hold of you there. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for spending time investing in the audience this evening.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being here.
1: And there you have it. That was my interview with Mr. Tyler Vella. It was jam packed with lots of information, lots of really, really good stuff. I felt like he did a good job of uh, both defending and explaining the position that he takes, not only the framework hypothesis, but also the idea of Genesis chapter one being a, a polemic argument uh, from Moses. On behalf of Yahweh, the Creator, really great stuff. I think he did a good job uh, attacking, or not attacking, but addressing some of the maybe misunderstandings of the view, as well as maybe addressing some of the unfair attacks that his view gets. Really, really good. As well as uh, just talking about some of the history and how the the idea of the rise of of you know of Darwinianism uh, and how that played a role in how people approach Genesis chapter one. So. Lots of lots of really good stuff. I want to encourage you to check out Tyler's podcast. It's called the Freed Thinker Podcast. And we'll have it linked up in the show notes of this episode. And if you're listening to this before May 18th, 2018, and you have any way of getting to North Carolina, check out the Mentionables Conference, where it's called Mentionables the Conference, May 18th and 19th in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's going to be really, really great stuff. In addition to that, we will also have in the show notes for this episode, we will have links to some of the resources that uh, Tyler mentioned. I think those could be really, really helpful. So we'll make sure we'll have those linked up as well as Tyler's paper. We'll have that linked up in the show notes for this episode as well. That's it from me for this episode. I hope this was helpful and insightful. If you have any questions about anything that Tyler said or anything we dialogued about that you would like us to bring some clarity uh, on, feel free to shoot me an email. I'd love to hear from you. The email address is heyortiz at com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at com. Or if you have a question or a topic that you want me to address on a future episode of the podcast, even if it's completely unrelated to anything Tyler and I talked about, I'd love to hear from you as well. Shoot me an email to that same email address. Last thought, if you know someone that you think would be a great interview guest, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to interview that person. You can email me at that same email address. Again, it's hey Ortiz at theology for the rest of us.com. or you can find me on Twitter. I love the tweet. I love corresponding with people on Twitter. You can find me there. My Twitter handle is at Kenneth Ortiz. It's K-E-N-N-E-T-H-O-R-T-I-Z. Thanks again for listening. I'm Kenny Ortiz and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.